This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Reformation restored to the church clarity about the gospel of free acceptance with God on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ received through faith alone in Christ. We summarize this doctrine with the slogans, By Grace Alone, Through Faith Alone, In Christ Alone. After the Reformation, evangelicals struggled to keep hold of that doctrine and yet hold on to a high doctrine of the Christian life. Our confession of the necessity of sanctification without putting believers back under a covenant of works. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the pendulum swung back and forth a few times. One of the most important and most recent examples of the tension between the gospel of grace and the imperative to holiness was the so-called Lordship Salvation controversy of the 1980s. This controversy influenced a generation of evangelicals and continues to reverberate in evangelical circles today. One of the most important books in the discussion was edited by our own Michael Horton, and that title is Christ the Lord, Reformation and Lordship Salvation, and was published in 19. 92. Mike Horton is the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's here to walk us through the issues and to talk about where we stand today. And this book, along with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Always great to be with you. Well, for the sake of this episode, we're going to time travel a little bit, going back to 1992, and before that, really, into the 80s, so... (laughs) Wow. Bad hair, bad music, just all sorts of problems. We both need some ginkgo biloba or whatever that was. (laughs) To remember. Something else. I know. I had to go back to the study and grab my copy of Christ the Lord that's tattered and and broken just to uh, try to remember what this was all about. But these are issues that still exist, and they shaped a generation, and they continue to reverberate today, and we're having a lot of the same discussions today that we were having in the early 90s and in the late 80s. So what was the lordship controversy back then? And we'll go from there. One of the things that we could talk about and unpack, I'm sure you agree with this, Scott, that we keep having some of the same debates over and over and over again, and you begin to see the similarities between all these debates. One of them is simply the disintegration of proper categories, and I'll explain that a little bit later if I have a chance. Basically, the lordship salvation controversy, in my view, was a debate and still is a debate within Wesleyan views of the Christian life. Now, the participants in this debate included people from outside of the Keswick or Higher Life Dallas Seminary world, including Reformed giants like James Boyce, J.I. Packer, and others. But it was particularly over a concern that justification and sanctification were being separated. Here's basically, put it in its simplest form, Charles Ryrie and a number of other writers such as Bill Bright and later Zane Hodges in the late 80s, as you mentioned, all in sort of the Dallas Seminary circle of that time were arguing that you need to accept Christ as your Savior to be saved, 
but you don't need to accept him as Lord to be saved. Now, you do need to accept Jesus as Lord to be victorious, to be spiritual. This struck a lot of people, especially Reformed people, as just rank antinomianism. Where does this come from? But actually, it has a fairly long history in evangelicalism because it actually goes back to Wesley. Now, we don't usually think of John Wesley as an antinomian because he certainly wasn't an antinomian, but he affirmed this, he taught this idea that there are two stages of salvation, justification and sanctification. One act of faith receives Jesus for justification, and then you have another crisis experience where you receive the Holy Spirit for sanctification. And so now this filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens later. And then in evangelicalism, that is understood in terms of being a carnal Christian versus a spiritual Christian. Many of us grew up with the phrase, saved but singed. Some people will get in by the hair of their chinny chin chin. Okay, good. I was going to ask you to explain that. (laughs) Yeah, they'll get in, but they're basically the people Paul talks about as carnal when he tells the Corinthians, I have to speak to you not as uh, mature Christians, but as carnal or unspiritual. They interpret that as a state of being, that essentially you can have people who are dead (laughs) in trespasses and sins, still essentially unregenerate, at least in terms of a living faith, a faith that is bearing the fruit of good works. You can actually have that kind of person, and they're just not living the victorious Christian life. And so your whole goal in ministry is to get the 80% of your people in your congregation to move out of coach into first class, from the carnal Christian, who is just happy to have Jesus as Savior, into the higher class of Christian who will have Jesus as Lord. Now, John MacArthur was one of the first voices to step up to the plate and say, well, this is simply unscriptural. His book, The Gospel According to Jesus, really blew this into a full-blown controversy, and many of the things that he said in that book were absolutely straight out of Scripture and were great arguments. However, there was a tendency to overshoot things sometimes and also not be clear. As I scratched my head and thought about the controversy, Scott, I thought, it's really hard to know exactly how to evaluate the participants in this debate, because on both sides, they're working from a non-reformed view of salvation and its application. Not that we disagree on everything, but the way we put things together, the categories are so different. We're going to talk about, for instance, being united to Christ by faith and receiving the whole Christ for justification and sanctification. You can't tear Christ in pieces. We're going to talk like that, and even those critical of the two-stage, you know, Jesus, Savior versus Jesus is Lord, even those who are critical of that, like John MacArthur, don't use the same Reformed categories to understand that. So it sounds like we are making Jesus Lord. We are doing something that is over and beyond trusting and resting in Christ for our justification. And so there was a blurring of justification and sanctification in John MacArthur's approach in that debate, I believe, which he since modified. And then there was a separation of justification and sanctification in the Zane Hodges Savior but not Lord Camp. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Is it still going on? Is this stuff still happening? Are we still having this discussion? My sense is that we are. Maybe the players have changed somewhat and some of the terms have changed, but under the surface, we're still having this discussion. We'll come back to that maybe in a minute. But it's interesting that most of the Reformed folk, as they responded to this, in a sense, extra Reformed argument, that is the argument that's really going on outside Reformed circles, and they tended to side mostly with MacArthur, 
rather than Hodges. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it was a long-standing, understandable and quite correct reaction against this Wesleyan two-step view of salvation. Reformed people have always insisted over against that view that through the same act of faith, we are united to Christ with all of his benefits. Not some of his benefits, not part of Christ for some of his benefits, but all of Christ for all of his benefits. That includes election, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So it's understandable that if you have people basically tearing Christ apart and parceling out some gifts that you get through one act of faith and other gifts that you get through some other crisis experience where you really, really, really surrender all, the Reformed tradition is going to say that is unacceptable. It is continuing to the extent that the Wesleyan, Keswick, higher life, victorious Christian life movement pervades evangelicalism. The Keswick movement was basically, if you read B.B. Warfield, the great theologian at Princeton, he has a great book, Perfectionism, where he goes through the history of these movements, and he roots it really in German mysticism. He goes all the way back to German mysticism, where you have this focus on a kind of Christ within, and you are obliterated, and Christ sort of takes the place of your self. There are lots of parallels, but basically out of the campaigns of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey and others, this Wesleyan view of two stages of salvation— two separate acts of faith became standard in a lot of evangelical teaching. And so, again, it's this idea that you can be saved and get into heaven by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin, even if you don't continue in faith. Because you've prayed the prayer. Yep, you signed the card. You've signed the card. And this is in the context of altar call, second great awakening, revivalism. It's a contract. Basically, we believe in a covenant where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will justify you. I will take away your sins. Oh, and by the way, I will sanctify you and I will glorify you. This is more like a contract where we say, okay, these are the services that I will contract for. Literally, I mean, some of us remember those tracts that at the end of the tract, after you prayed the prayer, it had a line for you to sign and say, now, if you signed this and you really meant that prayer, you are safe and secure from all alarm. Which is almost medieval, right? And J.I. Packer made this criticism back in 1991, and others made the same observation that this is very similar to at least some versions of Roman Catholicism, right? Well, that's the irony, Scott, because the advertising from the Savior but not Lord camp, the no lordship salvation camp, they advertised their position as free grace. It was called the free grace movement, and we're defending free grace. But what's ironic about that claim is that actually it's based on a very Arminian, synergistic view of God being stuck with me because I, of my own free will, signed the contract. He basically said, look, here are the terms, and whoever signs the contract is safe and secure from all alarm, no matter what fruit we see in their life at all, even continuing faith in Christ, that is done. Why? Because I decided to follow Jesus. No, not because I decided to follow Jesus. Because I made a decision to accept Jesus as, well, my personal Savior. And therefore, I'm eternally secure. That eternal security does sound like free grace, but it's based on my decision 
So this is really an in-house debate between Arminians. It's a debate between Arminians who believe that God is stuck with you after your free will decision, or God isn't stuck with you after your free will decision. The free will that got you in can get you out. That's the big debate. So we as Reformed people step into that and have to look both ways as the traffic is approaching. We're kind of in a weird intersection, not using the categories that we're familiar with. And this came out of a branch of evangelicalism that doesn't have any real connection to covenant theology. And so earlier you mentioned the word categories, and you said they they lacked categories. Explain what that means a little bit and connect that with the idea of reading Scripture as it unfolds in a covenantal way. Right. This is one of the reasons why we have systematic theology and historical theology to help us understand how the systematic theology emerged. Systematic theology is an attempt to understand the interconnections of biblical doctrines. This is not an attempt to impose on the Bible a structure from outside, but to see within Scripture itself sort of the road map, all the intersection of streets. You open up the Bible and you see it's not only a story moving in time from Genesis to Revelation, old creation to new creation, but it's also a network of highways. It's like opening up a map of California (laughs) roads and freeways. And if you have the wrong categories, what happens is, for example, whether you blur justification and sanctification, or separate justification and sanctification, you're basically working with the same confused theological categories. You can say, no, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life to be saved. No, you don't have to make Jesus Lord of your life to be saved. And we come into that and say, now wait a second, we're not saved by making Jesus Savior or Lord. We're saved because he is Savior and Lord, and he saves to rule, and he rules to say, this is who he is. We don't make him anything. I remember reading in J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, his description of liberal pietism as making Christ the master of one's life, as he said, a new form of works righteousness. I think that's a huge point. Yeah. And this is the point that Warfield made a long time ago, too. The people who are having this argument think of themselves as being rooted principally in Scripture, and they don't see what they're saying as being connected to 19th century German liberalism. So help us make that connection, because I'm sure there is a listener saying, wait a minute, Zane Hodges was a Bible-believing evangelical at Dallas Theological Seminary. That's not a place where you think about German liberalism taking root. Right. And I'm not saying at all that Zane Hodges, certainly not John MacArthur, his opponent in the controversy, have any remnants of liberalism. It's not like they were self-consciously turning, but Hodges in particular was influenced by ideas that did come out of that context. And maybe he wasn't aware of it, and certainly most of us weren't aware of it. Right. I think a lot of this is simply that American Protestantism in the late 19th century was evangelical. Evangelicalism was American mainline Protestantism, even up to the early part of the 20th century. And then you had the liberal modernist controversy. Well, the liberals and the modernists divided over many things, but they shared a lot of interests. For example, a lot of the moderates in the Presbyterian Church were dispensationalists. A lot of the moderates were more Wesleyan than Calvinistic in their soteriology. So in our context, when we think of dispensationalism, we might be thinking of sort of independent Bible churches. But at the turn of the 20th century— They were mainline Protestants. Meaning the Presbyterian Church, USA, and other of the what are sometimes called the seven sisters of the mainline. Exactly. You know, you can still have a lot of that evangelical pietism, even after you have jettisoned 
the intellectual commitment and faith commitment to miracles and to the incarnation and resurrection and atoning work of Christ, you can jettison all of those elements and still kind of keep the evangelical piety. And that's what a lot of people did and still do in the mainline. But I think that what's different here is we have people with whom we agree on the inerrancy of Scripture, on a whole host of very important, crucial points who don't flinch when they affirm the virgin conception of Christ and the miracles related to his life and saving work, and yet still have that same evangelical pietism that is very much shaped by the Christ within rather than the Christ of history who has come down from heaven to save us from our sins and says, I am going to justify and sanctify you. So I think one of the problems is that this was very much an in-house debate where even people who said that they were Calvinistic had not really been trained in the Reformed system of theology. And so they were still using these categories. So the question is a little difficult to put to us as Reformed people working with different categories. Do you believe that you're saved by making Jesus your Savior or that you can only be saved by making him your Savior and Lord? And we say, we're saved because he is Savior and Lord, and he seeks and saves the lost, and he came and he found us. He regenerated us monergistically, that is, without our cooperation, through the proclamation of the gospel. He gives us faith, unites us to Christ for justification, sanctification, and glorification. All of this is his doing in Jesus Christ. All heavenly riches are found in him. I'm not sure what you're talking about when you say, you're basically sounding to us like the rich young ruler saying, what is the one thing that I need to do in order to be saved? And what we're saying is, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Trusting in Jesus Christ as who he is, Lord and Savior, receiving him for justification, sanctification, glorification, everything is what you're coming to him for, but you're not coming to do something, you're coming to receive something. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Come to Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, to discover what the Bible says about growing in holiness and the Christian life. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014. wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Space is limited. Register today. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the heart and minds of God's people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. And when we explain this, thinking about the history of salvation, we explain it in covenantal terms, that God made a covenant of works, 
which we broke, all of us, in Adam. And then he made a covenant of grace, or at least administered a covenant of grace, and made promises to us, to Adam and Noah and Abraham, Moses and David and so forth, all of which were fulfilled in Christ. And we have talked historically about the benefits of Christ, or the double benefit of Christ, justification and sanctification. They're distinct, but as you've said, when someone comes to faith, they do so because God has elected them from all eternity and sovereignly raised them from death to life through the preaching of the gospel through which the Holy Spirit works and then creates faith and through faith unites them to Christ and they receive, as you say, the whole Christ with all of his benefits. Yeah, exactly, Scott. I think if you have to separate sanctification from justification in order to hold on to free grace, then you have a wrong view of sanctification. You think sanctification is the our works part of it. Well, what you're doing is telling that congregation that if they want to move up to first class, they have to be saved by works. Now, they can get into heaven by being saved by grace. Then you have the other camp saying, no, you've got to get into heaven by doing it all. And we're saying, no, 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 no. All of it is of grace. Even sanctification is of grace. Sanctification gives rise to a life of obedience where we are active. In regeneration, we are acted upon. We're not active. We're dead in trespasses and sins. But in conversion, faith and repentance, which is daily, we are totally active. And we put to death the deeds of the flesh and so forth. But that's not works in the sense of merit that we bring to God. That's the fruit of God's grace. We're not commending ourselves to God on the basis of what's being wrought in us in sanctification in which we're active. Right. Yes, we are active in sanctification. But as you're basically quoting the Westminster Confession, but we are not justified with reference to any of that. It's a fruit. It's a fruit. It's an evidence. It's an evidence of it. It's necessary. Yeah. But it's not an instrument and it's not a ground. Right. And you mentioned the importance of these categories of covenant theology. So absolutely crucial. I remember having conversations with a couple of these folks on both sides of the fence, Dr. Ryrie and Dr. MacArthur. Both strong dispensationalists who have a quite different reading of the history of redemption, right? Exactly. And at least at that time, I suspect that it has changed with Dr. MacArthur. But at the time, Dr. Ryrie was very much opposed to the idea of the active obedience of Christ, which is that we're not only justified by Christ's death, but his 32 years of perfectly fulfilling all righteousness is the positive righteousness, the positive record that is put to our account. If you believe so much in free grace, why would you reject that wonderful doctrine Machen said on his deathbed, no hope without it? Why would you reject that? That's our comfort that we're not only forgiven, but we're actually declared righteous because he lived that perfect life in our place. Why would you reject that? And Dr. Ryrie said, then we would be saved by works. And I, I said, yes, Which we is are. true. <laughs> yeah, not ours. <laughs> right. But there has to be somebody's. Someone has to fulfill the law. And that's what it gets down to, Scott. At the end of the day, there is a kind of hostility to the law. And Paul says that we're saved apart from the works of the law, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but not at the expense of the law. And that's precisely why Christ's active obedience is so crucial, so that, as Paul says, God may be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. How can a just judge declare righteous people who are actually not righteous? Well, the active obedience of Christ, his fulfillment of the covenant of works for us, 
His total fulfillment of the law is how we're saved. We are saved by the merits of Jesus Christ. So the Reformed want to uphold both the law and the gospel. Right. The minute you start turning a deaf ear to one, you will lose the other. We don't normally plug old books. (laughs) Usually we plug new books, but I'm holding in my hands, and I have been through most of this discussion, Michael Horton, editor, Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation, which has been reprinted since way back when. Lining bird cages. (laughs) No, it's reprinted. (laughs) And and honestly, it's a great primer on this for the articles and for the appendices, number two of which is Benjamin B. Warfield on Lewis Berry Schaefer, a review of He That Is Spiritual. That really is a brilliant review. If you don't get this book, you can get it online or something. Read Warfield's review of Lewis Berry Chafer's book, He That Is Spiritual. My mom had that, bless her heart, had it in her uh, (laughs) cupboard, and you know, I pulled it down and started reading through it. I was so confused by that book. And it's basically, again, this view of two stages of faith, two kinds of Christians, and that carnal Christian, spiritual Christian kind of thing. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Now, mostly in this discussion, we've been critical of Schaefer and Zane Hodges and that view, and a little bit critical of of the other side. Help us understand psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, why people would have found this approach to lordship, what was then called the free grace view. Why would they have found that attractive? What would drive people to embrace that? Not just because of bad theology, but I'm thinking of laity sitting in the pew hearing a certain kind of sermon week after week. Let me just say that I know this world. I grew up in it. I have a lot of friends who grew up in it. I went to Biola. So all the way through my childhood up through college years, I knew this world very well. And I can speak for myself at least. This is what is strange to a lot of people. In these so-called free grace churches, we would hear a lot of moralism. We would hear a lot of calls to take up our cross by being kind of outspoken in the workplace, going over and beyond the call of duty to make the point that we were Christians. And of course, you don't dance, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Now, what's ironic is if you were doing those things, you might not be saved. That was questionable. But you couldn't say that if you weren't keeping the law (laughs) that is actually found in Scripture, then you probably weren't saved. That's an irony. I think there was this contradiction. On one hand, people were saying, no, 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 it's all free grace. You get in only by making Jesus your personal Savior. But if you really want to live for the Lord, and what genuine, regenerate, converted Christian doesn't want that to describe them? If you really want the fullness of the Spirit, if you really want to be Spirit-filled and victorious and live for the Lord, here are the things you have to do. Wow, was that a laundry list? So, basically, if you just want to get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, you can just make Jesus your Savior. Nobody wanted to do that. So, basically, what you had was a kind of preaching that was constantly trying to move people from the bottom floor to the upper floor. By virtue of cracking the whip. By cracking the whip and carrots and sticks. One example of this, interestingly, is Charles Stanley's book, Eternal Security. Just one example of how we as Reformed Christians shouldn't say that we believe in eternal security simply because of its identification with this view. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, or the perseverance of God with his saints. Charles Stanley, well-known pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, wrote this book, Eternal Security, in which he argued that the place described by Jesus— where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, which 
the church for 2,000 years has thought sounds, smells, tastes oddly like hell, is actually, no, not hell, but a part of heaven where carnal Christians live. Almost a purgatory. You look at the description and you say, this is purgatory. The difference is, at least, Rome lets you out after a certain time. (laughs) Here, you are eternally secure in heaven. But you're stuck. Yeah, it's like hell. Looks like hell, feels like hell. Somewhere in between heaven and hell. You're not. It's not quite hell. It's not eternal punishment, but it ain't heaven either. No. And there's a reason why Christians have always heard Jesus describing hell in those verses. It is hell. So to actually say that the good news is you're saved, the bad news is you're going to live in a really bad part of town. You're going to suffer forever. In heaven? It's a very odd view. It is Protestant purgatory, and it's worse than Roman Catholic purgatory because you're in there forever. That's what I mean when I say it's totally confusing to me. And I think it's confusing to a lot of people to hear champions of quote-unquote free grace end up making salvation dependent on the free will of the individual to begin with and making the higher life and rewards something that is analogous to the Roman Catholic system of merit. Remembering a little bit about Rod Rosenblatt's essay in this volume, in which he said the gospel is for Christians, too. That's one of Rod's wonderful emphases that he just keeps hammering, and I'm glad he does. It is such a message that we always need to hear. I can channel him now and say, good on him. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, we think the gospel's for non-Christians to get them in. And then once they get in, they get the fine print and all of the conditions, and they say, oh, wow, this isn't all that free, is it? And I think he's describing the Lutheran pietism he was raised in. But that is the dispensational Bible church world I was raised in. And that just underscores, you know, it's not beating up fellow Christians, it's just to underscore the importance, the great importance of finding the Bible's own categories, the Bible's own distinctions, so that we don't blur together things that ought to be distinguished but not separated. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.